back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson, and as regular listeners know, a few months ago we sent out a call for personal essays. The goal was to give anyone a chance to express their own thoughts and feelings. The only rules we imposed on the contest was that the essay had to be personal and it had to do something with Mormonism. Um, I'm pleased to introduce the results to you tonight and uh, let, you, let you hear the voice of these individuals for yourself. Putting yourself out there is not easy. It's not always easy to find the voice of what uh, thoughts and feelings are inside or to express those in words. I think many people struggling with the church have found that there's a torrent of words and information and people talking and accusing and screaming and yelling and words and words and words and words. You get together with other uh, liberal Mormons or, or ex-Mormons and the the words just flow as people try to process these things that are, that are happening to them. Religion is a complex thing. It gives us happiness. It sometimes confuses us. For some people, it's the greatest thing in their life, and for some people, it's the greatest source of sorrow. Let's begin tonight by hearing the words of Chris. Oftentimes, the ties that bind in the church run pretty deep through families and through experience. We put a lot on the line oftentimes when we join the church and the sacrifices we make for our membership and for the, the things that come our way. Chris's experience illustrates that. Like many of your listeners, I was born and raised Mormon. My family has played a very strong role in the establishment and development of the church in Bulgaria. My mother is a native of Bulgaria and while fleeing from communism was converted to Mormonism with all of her family while living in France. So strong was her conviction of the truth of the Mormon faith, she inevitably found herself attending BYU not long after being converted. It was there that she met my father in a clinic following a nasty brush with poison ivy he had had earlier that day. I believe my mother's roommate was a nurse of sorts in the clinic and tipped her off that there was a very cute guy that needed visitors. Some kind of thinly veiled attempt at a blind setup, you know the drill. Well, it worked. They got married a couple of months later in the temple, Provo, I believe, and went on to have six kids, of which I am the youngest. After a fun-filled romp in the countries of France, Portugal, the Azores, Brazil, and Germany, not particularly in that order, Gaining more family members as each country passed, my father decided to retire as a U.S. Foreign Service officer. He settled for the far less glamorous and less adventurous career as a technical writer. Why would anyone decide to leave such a rich and fulfilling career to work as a technical writer for a software company? It so happens that, my, uh, that the church my parents were so fond of issued a call to service to my mother. She was to teach... Bulgarian at the Missionary Training Center in Provo, Utah. The technical writing position that my father snatched up in a hurry was for Word Perfect, which was in the neighboring town of Orem. This was to become the city of my upbringing. I don't know all the details, but I can only imagine my mother as being a very vocal and outspoken advocate of the church, but more specifically the opening of her native Bulgaria to the preaching of the gospel. Over the years of service in the Mormon Church, both she and my father had managed to make some friends in very high places within the church. This became evident, as my mother was the one to single-handedly translate the Book of Mormon in its entirety from English to Bulgarian. It was also her father, Kirill, who ended up being the first mission president of the Bulgaria Sophia Mission. Or was it the Sophia Bulgaria Mission? Yeah, I forget. Now that you're somewhat aware of my family's recent history and significance in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I can get going on my apostasy. 
the idea that I would someday not be a member of the Mormon Church in my own free will would have certainly sounded absurd to me prior to April of 2009. I'm not saying I'd never imagined myself in that position many times previous, however. I've always let my mind wander in all things to very high degrees of absurdity. It was just in the case of being Mormon, I always wondered what it was like not being as lucky as I was having the fullness of the gospel in my life. It always made me shudder and increased my resolve to do what is right. I was always active in church. For the majority of my life, a good chunk, if not the majority of my social network, was all encapsulated by church groups and activities. This is the kind of environment that I can't ever remember being without. Serving a mission was almost never an if statement, and that's when I ended, that's what I ended up doing. I was called to serve in the Sweden-Stockholm mission. Looking back on it now, I can definitely say that I don't regret it. Ironically, my faith was probably the thing that was strengthened the least by my mission experience. If anything, my sense of empathy was the attribute that underwent a massive overhaul, as well as tolerance, of course. I I did have a moment, uh, just a moment, of existential crisis on my mission. It was in the little town of Katrineholm in the south of Stockholm, I believe. Uh, We had met someone who could only be described by his nickname, or rather the nickname that we gave him, Mystery American Muslim Man. He was indeed all of those things, quite the mystery how he thought, as well as an American. He had converted to Islam for some reason in the recent past, and while this is abundantly clear and in no need of further clarification, I'll state it for the, for the sake of consistency. He was a man. I wish I remember what it was that he said to us, my companion and I, I just remember my thoughts dwelling on it the whole night. Whatever it was that he said, it made me come to a terrifying conclusion for a brief moment. I was completely stripped of all my mental safety nets, as well as the influence of my peers and family. It was just me for that brief moment. It was in that moment that I realized that I didn't know for certain of God's existence, and could probably never know either. It wasn't the time or the setting for this, however. I I just wasn't ready. I put it on a shelf inside a safe and put that safe in the back of my mind. It wasn't until around March of 2009 that my faith was seriously called into question. For real. Uh, Not that the previous instance was any less real than this one. Uh, This one just led somewhere. Uh... Who The person that called it into question, it wasn't by any naysayer or wayward friend, but myself. This is where I truly ended up being quite lucky, uh, because by this time I was married to my wife, of course, to, uh, my wife, Emma, who happened to be on the exact same level and going at the exact same pace as I was in this process. Basically, it started out with both of us starting to notice how how we felt each Sunday as we came out of church and started walking home. We felt horrible. Not guilt horrible, just disgusted horrible. One day I turned to Emma and just flat out asked, Do you feel bad coming out of church? Nodding emphatically, she responded, Yeah, it happens every Sunday now. I got... I go in feeling alright and leave feeling awful. We talked more about it and came up with various theories on why the church was... or, or why church, rather, was such a downer. We both came to the conclusion that it was the ward we were attending. 
It was overwhelmingly patriotic, and everyone, with a few exceptions, just seemed so mass-produced. We decided to try out a different word in an earlier time slot. It was even worse. We even had friends that attended that ward. Isn't that supposed to make it better? We then started to think that we were the problem, or rather our testimonies. I can't speak as well for my wife at this point on. I can just say that she followed me into that rabbit hole, going down a steeper and steeper slope until it turned into a free fall. I should mention that this was the same time I started working at the Apple back-to-school rebate team at the local temp job center. The best part about it was that I wasn't on the phone team. Instead, I was on the team that digitized the rebate forms, so I could come in, sit down, and start working on a stack of envelopes while listening to music or an audiobook. I blazed through the first three books of the Enders series by Orson Scott Card, as well as a book that I couldn't have started at a better time, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. I found this book so intriguing that I then went on to listen to The End of Faith by Sam Harris. Those two books really got me thinking about my own beliefs and made me question how much of them were truly my own. From that point on, it didn't take me long to unravel my religious belief in its entirety. I had none. There were bits and pieces of Mormon doctrine that I really liked and clung to more than others, but for me it's all or nothing. Honestly, no, Honestly, though, the doctrine wasn't really what did it for me. The meat of the matter was that once I was able to remove myself mentally from Mormon society, from what I was born into, I understood that spiritual confirmations were based solely on feelings derived from emotion. Finally, I could look back on my brief crisis of faith I had had as a missionary and not only make sense of it, but not be afraid of it. I finally saw that, no, I don't like the idea of suspending my sense of logic and reason so as to contort my mind in such a way as to fill some sort of existential void that I'm obligated to have by being human, by believing the idea of a god. A god, while being very Bronze Age, is also quite modern. A god that is the same now and forever, except in cases of social evolution, then changes are necessary, of course as well as the idea of an all-encompassing, literally all-encompassing, vicarious sacrifice that nobody could ever hope to understand. I can't help but think of the parable of the talents as explained by a church apostle. Of course, the correlation was so simple when I heard of it, the, rather when I heard it the first time, but my mind was conditioned so as to understand it that way I, I was supposed to understand from birth. I think of it now, and I truly can't see how these teachings are so widely considered moral. I guess what I wrote earlier about the doctrine not being the problem didn't turn out to be the case. The classic uh, Christian doctrines are adopted by Mormon faith and taken so much further. They're probably... They're probably... Uh, or rather, they're pretty much taken as far as your imagination limits you to or if you are of my persuasion, however much you can stomach. While it's not too early for me to be able, or rather, while it's still too early for me to be able to say, I'm proud to have Mormon lineage, and truly mean it, I still recognize, after the dust has settled a bit, that the Mormon faith does have many positive and uplifting messages and teachings that I still agree with. It also offers many people, in many cases, a healthy societal structure to participate in and gives their lives meaning. 
The trick now is to not go crazy and give in to cynicism and general intolerance. It'd be a shame to make it this far only to come full circle. Hey, there's a decent, sufficiently ambiguous Mormon principle. Moderation in all things. Our second essay is provided by Andrew. Oftentimes the experiences that we feel in relationship to the church are complicated and can be best expressed in metaphor. Here is Andrew's extended metaphor describing his view on the church and individual's relationship to it. Picture a huge rectangular block of ice, 70 stories tall, sitting in a wide plain in a mountainous region in the west central part of North America. Exactly how it got there is the subject of debate. Some say it was a divine act of nature. Others say man built it, adhering strictly to the laws of nature, and that it glorifies nature as a result. And still others say it was built by men for the most unnatural and vile purposes, that it defiles nature. The cold north winds of nature's winter seem to keep the ice blocks solid and perfect and gleaming. But there are seasons of warm sun and gentle breezes that melt drips and drops off the edges. The crisp, sharp edges disappear in places and morph into rounded and cloudy sections. Indentations, gaps, and even holes appear in places where warm breezes blow. The ice block is changing, and we can see the changes even from a great distance. In many ways, the ice block is not what it was in the past. When we get a little closer to the block of ice, we see workmen, almost all dressed in white shirts, scurrying about the base of the structure. And we even notice some workmen scaling the sides and on top of the large rectangular prism. These people seem actively engaged in some purpose. Some are attempting to repair imperfections. And when they manage to patch a small hole with new ice, they stand back and admire their work and claim, really, there was never any damage done at all. Nothing has ever changed. The block has always been perfectly rectangular. Some people are adding very cold water to the top and watching it freeze. They tell us they are building the largest, best, and most perfect glacier in all of nature. They know it will take time, but they are certain that with diligence, their 70-story ice cube can become a glacier spanning the entire globe. There are men assigned to tell us the story of the creation of the ice block and others assigned to tell us the, of the importance of the ice block, and still others assigned to tell us of the future of the ice block. In their stories, they tell of men who have preceded them as storytellers and as workers, and they tell us of the great stories that have been told and of the great work the men have done in building the ice block. Upon closer examination, we notice that fully half, in some areas more than half, of the workers involved in building, repairing, and improving the ice block are women. The women are doing much the same work as the men, but always the men are in charge. The stories told by the storytellers rarely mention the women or their contribution. The work continues, sometimes furiously, but real progress is slow, even halting, and sometimes even the most energetic work cannot keep up with the natural melting actions. As we move about among the people working on the ice block, we see others who are nearly invisible at first due to their inactivity. They are the idlers along the periphery. 
also nearly invisible are the bystanders, who have found their way to the middle of activity, but although standing in the midst of the workers, contribute little or nothing toward the building of the ice block. The busy workers sometimes glare at the idlers, sometimes cajole them and attempt to get them involved in the work, but largely the workers ignore the idlers and go about their own work. The busy workers are mostly friendly with the bystanders, but sometimes uneasy about them. As we walk around the base of the ice block, we notice there are many crippled people, most who are former workers who have become injured. Some tell us they became so weary in their work they could no longer continue and fell. Some had various other accidental work injuries. Others say the work became so tedious and dreadful that they willingly jumped from their high places. Few of the workers on the ice block take any notice of their crippled former colleagues. Some actively criticize the cripples for getting in the way or for having been weak or ineffective in their jobs saying that they deserve to be crippled. The crippled former workers seem to be organizing in small groups of like-minded people. They are helping each other to become healthy and well. Some are ignoring their former colleagues. Some are criticizing them. Some are trying to get their former colleagues to leave their ice block jobs. And some are trying to find a way to still share their lives with their friends and family who are actively engaged in the work of building the block of ice. Some of the former workers are filled with animosity and are actively chipping away at the edges of the ice block, attempting to injure or destroy the ice block. Some former workers are blowing hot air on the ice block. Some are calling on nature to transform the block, and some are trying to forget the ice block's existence. The ice block is many things to many people. Some people are drawn to it and worship the ice block as if the ice block itself was all of nature. Many of the workers think the ice block contains all the beauty that exists in nature. Some workers, however, see the ice block as a job and a way of life and nothing more. Some people hang around the periphery of the ice block, and some ignore the ice block and walk away, never looking back. What will become of this large block of ice, we cannot know exactly. We do know that some ice lasts for thousands of years, and some ice melts away and disappears completely. Most of us doubt this ice block will become the largest glacier in the world. We know that people will continue to be hurt while working to enlarge or repair it. We know nature's wind will occasionally seem to act to make it solid and pure, while at other times working to dissolve and destroy it. But we know most of all that nature brings about change, and that the ice block will change. This ice block is in our lives and it is changing. Our actions, whatever they are, will affect the ice block, whether we choose to build it up, tear it down, watch it from a safe distance, or walk away from it entirely. Our actions will affect the ice block and all the workers, former workers, storytellers, bystanders, and idlers around it. Let us each consider our actions very carefully in connection to the large block of ice. President of the church David O. McKay famously said, no other success can compensate for failure in the home. Although this quote is probably a, a great motivator for many, it has a flip side. Since no other success can compensate for failure in the home, and success is defined in the home and in the gospel, 
For those parents who have children who leave the church, there can be no greater pain. Listen to Clay's essay discussing his relationship with his brothers and sisters to their parents as they go through this painful process. My younger sister and brother are creative, dedicated, pensive, and enthusiastic people. More importantly, they are just good people. Unfortunately, during family get-togethers, the atmosphere is sometimes strained instead of joyful. You see, both my younger sister and brother decided to disassociate themselves from the LDS church in their high school years and have since retained their disassociation. This creates a strange relationship between them and my parents. The tension is complex, and its nuances defy my descriptive skills. What is clear is that in the eyes of my parents, no accomplishments my siblings achieve will ever make up for the disappointment my parents feel for their children's apostasy, a disappointment that taints every family gathering. This disappointment is what prevents me from being fully transparent about my own apostasy. Perhaps in retrospect, my apostasy was a long time coming. As a teenager, I was in teacher's corn, and the teacher decided to hold a spur-of-the-moment testimony meeting. We sat in a circle, and I listened as the other kids bore testimony of all the expected things. I was jittery, and was not excited for my turn to speak. When all eyes were on me, I nervously but steadily said that I didn't have a testimony in those expected things. I was then told by an attending bishopric member that he did not believe me. What? What do you mean you do not believe me? I said with obvious irritation. He replied with confidence and authority, I don't think that anyone can be raised in the church and not have any kind of testimony. I spent the rest of the meeting tamping my foot, furiously trying to tamp down my rage. In retrospect, I hope that my testimony of no testimony was fueled by some rational thought and was not only driven by teenage rebellion, the drugs from the night before, and my own prickish tendencies. Similarly, I hope that the time that I walked out of seminary after a heated altercation with my teacher about blacks and the priesthood was instigated by an ideal hidden inside me, and not just my iconoclasm run amok. Yet religious belief is so bizarre that not long afterward, I found myself the recipient of an earth-shattering, born-again experience. The church really was true. Maybe the, that old man in teacher's quorum was right, and I really did have a testimony all along. A spinning amalgam of faithful years followed that included a mission, religious zeal, temple marriage, and me towing the party line the best I knew how. Then it hit. For reasons familiar to so many, I felt my testimony being torn from my grasp. I came to a junction where I had to decide whether I would believe in the faith of my fathers no matter what, ignoring everything that was quickly becoming clear, or would I start exploring this treacherous path now in front of me? I decided to explore. My story is not unique. It isn't even special. It is common, too common. Post-apostasy tension piles up in communities and families amongst Christians, Muslims, Mormons, and I'm sure all other religions that at times are more concerned with their images of the great hereafter than they are about enjoying the here and now. People speak about a deep feeling of liberation after letting go of belief. I have felt that sense of liberation many times, but the question that is now staring me down is whether or not I am willing to sit in front of many of my loved ones and be okay with knowing that no matter what I may achieve or have achieved, their disappointment runs deeper, tainting every family gathering. In Mormonism, 
the testimony is an interaction of your feelings with the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. To Mormonism, the Spirit is of paramount importance, more so than any sort of rational processing of the gospel or of the church. Listen to Cody's essay as he discusses the Spirit and thinks through the way he, that he that he processed those ideas and processes them now. Is the Spirit a reliable tool to determine truth? The idea that one can pray regarding any aspect of Mormonism and receive a spiritual confirmation is central to LDS belief. Members are encouraged to not just rely on the faith of their family or friends, but to get their own answer by praying and receiving a feeling that it is true. This is commonly referred to as a burning in the bosom or listening to the still small voice, and basically includes any supernatural subjective experience as evidence that the church is true, or that you are receiving an answer to your prayer. Having been a missionary, I recall how heavily we relied on this teaching. Either by direction from my superiors or through observing other missionaries, I felt pressured to emphasize and embellish or invent my own spiritual confirmation story to relate to potential converts. Since I never had anything supernatural occur in response to a prayer, I attempted to be both honest and faith-promoting about the, about the promise to have their prayers answered. We encouraged investigators to pray about what we had told them, and if they received a good feeling, then we instructed them to interpret that as the Holy Ghost testifying to them about the veracity of our message, and, in extension, that the Mormon Church was true. There is no doubt that this idea is a powerful tool to help people feel comfortable with either a difficult decision or a new idea, but is it a reliable method to determine objective truth? Since almost every religion professes spiritual confirmation to be a part of their belief, is the witness that Mormons receive any different than what others experience? While the idea is universal amongst Mormons, the way each person experiences it is unique. In the early days of the Mormon religion, powerful manifestations such as visions, speaking in tongues, and fainting were common, as it was with many of the revival participants of the day. Since that time, <clears throat> the experience has become much more personal and intimate than outwardly apparent. Most des describe the experience as a warm sensation or thoughts or words coming to their mind, the experience may be personal, but it is still described as being very powerful, enough so that their conviction that they received an answer is solid. The truth is, however, that by having a completely subjective experience, there is no way to compare it to other experiences for validity. The experience is so vague and undefined that almost anything could be construed to constitute an answer. And yet, when it comes to other religions' version of the Spirit, many faithful LDS are skeptical. The speaking in tongues that occurs in certain religions, Christian sects is a good example of perceived divine interaction, wholly believed by the participants, but which is almost entirely distrusted or dismissed by Mormon believers. The Mormon experience of spiritual confirmation is not unique, or even completely definable, except by what it isn't. The only way to know if the answer is from the Spirit is by what the answer is. If the answer is affirming to belief in the LDS Church, then the answer is from the Spirit, and vice versa. Are there any examples where the Spirit was wrong? Since the Church teaches us to be responsible investigators, it is important to look at any examples where the Spirit may have been wrong and understand why. For example, there are a number of instances where the Spirit confirmed truth to believers, only to have the truth turn out to be false. For example, the Mormon Apostle Paul H. Dunn was well known for giving conference talks about his experiences as a professional baseball player and as a soldier. Many faithful recall his stories and how the Spirit touched them during his talks. Since he neither participated in war, nor was a professional baseball player, the spirit, that many could have, the spirit that many felt could not have been testifying about the veracity of his stories. 
When confronted with Paul H. Dunn, many believers say that in that case, the Spirit was testifying about the truth of his message, or even the stories them, even if the stories themselves weren't true. Sometimes Mormons will say that the Spirit will testify of universal truth, regardless of the religion it is being taught in. This would explain why other Christians can feel the Spirit, because they are teaching of Christ. The problem with these explanations is that there is no quantifiable difference between when the Spirit is testifying about the truth of the message, as in Paul H. Dunn's case, when the Spirit is testifying of universal truth, as in the other Christian, Christian churches' cases, or when the Spirit is testifying about the actual truth of the claim, as in praying about the veracity of the Book of Mormon as an actual history of Native Americans. You can't have it all ways. Similar to Paul H. Dunn's story, stories, the official history of the LDS Church purposely leaves out many facts that, while true, may not be faith-promoting. For example, the use of seer stones by Joseph Smith to translate the Book of Mormon, the nature of polygamy practiced by the early church, etc. The resulting history is not unlike a Disney movie of a historical event, where the story is very touching and sensational but not accurate. Someone who receives this version of events is more likely to be emotionally affected by it and attribute the emotion to the spirit, but receiving the entire history, with troubling parts and all, may not evoke a spiritual confirmation. It isn't reasonable to suggest that people were not actually affected by Paul H. Dunn's stories, or by hearing a whitewashed version of church history. But when we attribute just any good feelings to the spirit, we can confuse what is actually causing the feelings and what those feelings actually mean. So if it's not the spirit, what is it? There is a philosophical tool known as Occam's razor, which paraphrased states that in most cases, the simplest of all explanations is usually correct. Based on Occam's razor, we should explore some other explanations for the phenomenon known as the spirit. First of all, we have to define objective truth. Objective truth is what is real regardless of what anybody's opinion is on the topic. For example, 5 is a greater amount than 3. No matter what I think about it, that is true. A good example of this concept in regards to religion is the belief that the earth was the center of the universe. When Galileo was led to believe, through scientific investigation, that the sun was actually the center of the solar system, the religious establishment of his day considered this to be heresy and contrary to God's word. But since the sun is actually the center of the solar system and not the earth, eventually the objective truth was discovered. With Paul H. Dunn's stories, the objective truth was that he was never a professional baseball player or a veteran. Feelings can be extremely powerful without any spiritual involvement. Most of us have been moved to tears by a touching movie or a powerful book. Listening to a ghost story around a campfire can keep you up all night jumping at every sound. The stories can be completely fictitious, yet our emotions can be completely affected by them. If you add in a religious component, wherein the listener not only believes the story to be true, but also believes that the story will actually affect them, the likelihood of being affected by the story is greater. Many people will not watch movies regarding satanic possession because they are afraid that they may actually invite evil spirits by watching the movie, even if the story is completely made up. This emotional response to perceived spiritual experiences is a known physiological phenomenon. It can be predicted and measured, and there, are, there have been numerous studies that explore the different variables that make up a powerful emotional connection to a story. In none of these studies does the actual veracity of the story actually affect the emotional connection. What matters is that the subject believes the story. Also, we must take into consideration the idea of confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the idea that we tend to count the hits and ignore the misses. 
It is the way psychics convince their marks that their, their predictions are accurate. By putting out enough vague statements, some are bound to be accurate. When the credulous believer hears the five accurate statements from the psychic, they tend to ignore the 20 inaccurate statements. When we pray for divine guidance, anything can be considered an answer to a prayer. For example, if we are behind on our bills and we pray for financial help, and the next day we happen to receive a check that was owed to us, we consider that to be an answer to the prayer. Would the check have arrived anyway? Probably. What if the check didn't arrive? Whatever occurs to make it so you can pay your bills would have been considered a hit. We don't consider the non-arrival of a check to be a miss. This, the same is true with the Spirit. If we pray about the veracity of the Book of Mormon, almost anything can be considered a hit. If we don't get a vision about its truth, we don't consider that a miss. And when considering the misses of confirmation bias, we are, we are reminded of another basic Mormon belief, that if you didn't receive an answer to your prayer, it is likely because you were either unworthy, didn't ask right, didn't have sincere intentions, or just haven't received the answer yet. With these caveats, there is essentially no way to receive a negative answer to a prayer about the veracity of the Book of Mormon. Confirmation bias and emotional effect of a story in a controlled environment conform to what we already know about the world around us, without having to add any supernatural aspects to the equation. These phenomena are entirely consistent with each known variety of spiritual manifestations across all religions. Occam's razor tells us that the mundane answer, and not the supernatural one, is a much more plausible explanation for the feelings of the spirit. How then do we discover truth? A common question that arises with the mundane explanation for the feelings we call the spirit is how then do we discover truth? When it comes to spiritual matters, we are used to relying on those good feelings to help us make important decisions. If those feelings are self-generated, then how do we know what God wants us to know? For the most part, Mormons, like everyone else, make most of their decisions based off of logic, good evidence, and sound reasoning. When building a shed, most of us consult plans instead of the spirit. When deciding which car to buy, we make objective comparisons, read reviews, and criticisms, and see which one best fits our budget. It is really only when it comes to questions that don't have absolute answers, such as, should I take this job, or should we buy this home, that we are truly tempted to consult the Spirit. Most of the time, we only consult the Spirit after having done all that we can to make an informed decision, and many times the Spirit just makes us feel comfortable with the decision that we have already made. Having independent confirmation can make you feel better about a big decision, and conversely, can also take away the responsibility if the choice was unfortunate. If there is a God... And since the Spirit isn't a reliable source of truth, then he apparently wants us to discover the truth about the gospel in the same manner as he wants us to find out the truth about buying a car, by sincere investigation and careful, well-thought-out decisions. When we put the onus for our decisions on the Spirit, we remove the responsibility to make good decisions for, from ourselves. When we make bad decisions, we blame the fact that we were led by the Spirit and don't take the proper blame for those decisions ourselves. Additionally, we can become increasingly reliant on following the promptings of the still small voice to the point where our whims become messages from the Spirit. In conclusion, relying on the Spirit to determine truth is unreliable, and there are much more plausible explanations for the feelings that accompany prayer. That isn't to say that prayers don't get answered, only that our interpretation of any associated subjective experience may be wrong, and therefore our convictions to those beliefs should reflect that uncertainty. When confronted with a difficult issue in regards to our beliefs, resorting to the defense of, the Spirit told me it was true, 
is an intellectual get-out-of-jail-free card and is a perfect example of the special pleading logical fallacy. Underbusses! Very nice. <laughs> it is completely possible that what we felt was real to us, but the conclusions that we are tempted to draw about those experiences are very possibly not accurate. There are many different areas of the church that give different people problems and crises of faith. We oftentimes speak of the shelf that those ideas go on. Probably one of the, the leading ideas on the shelf is that of race and the church's relationship to race. Listen to Christian's essay as he discusses his own historical relationship with the idea of race in the Mormon church and how he thinks about those things now. The first black man I ever met was Carl Malone. Yes, that Carl Malone, the NBA star. It was the fall of 1985, his rookie season with Utah Jazz. I was 14 and <clears throat> a rising 7th grade basketball star at Kaysville Junior High. I had convinced my dad to take me to an open Utah jazz practice at Westminster College in Salt Lake. Afterward, I got a few autographs, including the mailman's. A few months later, after one of these Kaysville Junior High games, my family celebrated at our favorite restaurant, the Mandarin in Bountiful. There, happened to be sitting in the waiting room, was Adrian Dantley. I sat next to him and nervously started up a conversation, telling him about my game that day. He seemed, or at least acted, interested, asking me about how many points and rebounds I had. So the first two interactions that I ever had with adult African-American men, if you can call getting an autograph and a three-minute conversation interactions, were both with NBA superstars. There were only a few black kids at Cadesville Junior High. Vu, a recent immigrant to the U.S. who was a ninth grader and who was also on the basketball team, and there were, there was one other student that I vaguely remember from the seventh grade with me. But my junior high yearbook reveals that there were two. I don't remember the other one. One of them is not in the eighth grade yearbook, and neither of them are in the ninth grade yearbook. There were no black teachers at Kaysville Junior High, nor at Davis High School, no black staff members of any kind. I tell you this to illustrate just how racially undiverse growing up in Kaysville, Utah was. I had a couple of Asian American friends and knew a few Hispanic students, but otherwise all of my friends, classmates, and teachers were white. The two most common points of Mormon doctrine to cause questions among believers are the blacks and the priesthood issue and polygamy. I never had any reason to think about, much less question, either of these. I grew up knowing that I had pioneer and polygamous ancestors, but never gave it much thought. The so-called priesthood ban was lifted when I was seven years old, before I was even technically a member. Having almost no contact with persons of color, the issue just didn't cross my mind. It didn't even occur to me that, growing up, Carl Malone couldn't have even been a deacon. My only interactions with African Americans was, on the Co was with the Cosbys on Thursday nights. Then I moved to New Hampshire between my junior and senior years of high school when my dad took a job near Boston. I went from being in a high school of probably 90% Mormons, to being one of only six Mormons in a school of about 3,000, and one of those six was my sister. Suddenly I was a point of curiosity. I was the new tall kid from Utah. What are Mormons? What do you believe? How are you different from Catholics? Moreover, I now had African-American classmates. I won't say that I had many black friends, but my world now looked decidedly different than it used to. I started to confront these issues. I didn't feel 
I could talk about them with others, and it didn't occur to me to head to the library. This was in 1988, pre-internet days, of course, and I doubt the Nashville Public Library would have had much anyway. I tackled polygamy first. I read the Old Testament and made a note of every time there was a reference to plural marriage. Of course, I had no real biblical studies background other than seminary, which I often skipped at Davis High to go cycling, and Sunday school, which was mostly spent flirting with girls, so I really had no means to interpret what I was reading. I just made a tally, and soon enough I was able to put this issue on the shelf. It didn't cross my mind to wonder if the apostles, or Jesus himself, were polygamous, given that this was supposed to be the restoration of the Church of Christ. But the priesthood ban was trickier. If God was not a respecter of persons and loved all of his children, how was I to make sense of this? The Mormon books I had were mostly silent on the issue, on this issue, other than Bruce R. McConkie's unhelpful Mormon doctrine, which mostly just repeats the official declaration, too. I didn't know that dialogue existed, let alone Lester Bush's article or others to help me make sense of the issue, and I didn't connect the dots that the Book of Mormon teaches that whitesome is delightsome, while darkness is a sign of wickedness. None of my friends asked me about it, probably because they didn't themselves know about it. But if they had, how would I have explained that only ten years earlier my black classmates would have only been allowed marginal membership in the LDS Church had they been interested in joining? Then came Elder Van Dyke to the Nashville Ward. He was the answer to my prayers, because, as you might guess, Elder Van Dyke was black. He was one of the friendliest, most energetic missionaries I had met. I had not interacted with missionaries in Utah. You could count all of the non-member houses within our war boundaries on one hand. So it was exciting for me to spend time with the missionaries. One time, while out on splits, I asked Elder Van Dyke if I could ask him a question. Of course, he replied. I think he knew what was coming. I suddenly became nervous and didn't even know how to ask. So finally, I just asked what he thought of Declaration 2. He explained that he had faith that the Lord knew what he was doing, and he didn't worry about it. Well, that was enough for me. If it didn't worry him, why should it worry me? A year later, I would be in the MTC at the same time that the first black general authority, Helvesio Martins, was there to learn English. And I had the chance to speak with him a few times. This further reassured me that I had nothing to worry about. The priesthood ban would go to to the back burner for some time for me. During my mission to Santiago, Chile, I learned of the racism toward Mapuche Indians, but they would have never been excluded from the priesthood anyway, and there were no blacks in Chile. When I returned to college at the University of Utah, my dorm floors had international students, but very few black students. But later, as other doubts about the church came up for me, I revisited the priesthood ban. The same questions that nagged me before came back, and it came off the shelf. I distinctly remember a conversation I had with an old college friend about the topic. He was active in the church, just like me, but he was unequivocal. It was wrong. Wrong. It was just a mistake. This seemed like not a small mistake for the one true church to have. It was only then that I began to learn about the origins of the ban, as I began to try to make sense of it. I encountered the quotes by Brigham Young that the Negro is damned, and that if the white man mixes with the seed of, the, of Cain, the penalty under the, under the law of God is death on the spot. I dismissed this as being from a long, bygone era, then only to discover the more recent attitudes of Ezra Taft Benson, 
and other general authorities toward Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. Utah didn't even use the MLK designation for the national holiday, instead calling it Human Rights Day until 2000. And it was even more recent that the state finally changed its constitution so that the legislature did not open on MLK Day. Last year, after Barack Obama was sworn in as president, he attended a luncheon with U.S. senators in, in the statuary hall of the U.S. Capitol. As I watched this event on TV, I noticed the statue of Brigham Young in the background. And then there was a scene of two prominent Mormon senators toasting, with glasses of water, of course, our first black president. This, to me, seemed like a curious moment. I have now lived in South Carolina for the past three years, where the issue of race is ever-present. I look As I look back on my youth in Utah, I can understand and even perhaps empathize a bit with why the priesthood ban stood for so long. If I had such limited exposure to African Americans in the 1970s and 80s, how much less exposure must there have been in previous decades? This does not excuse the behavior of past church leaders. It only helps me understand how they as humans, might make the kinds of decisions that they did in leading their organization. Just a few week, weeks ago, I happened to be fooling around on family search, of a habit that must be drilled into my Mormon DNA, and started looking into one line of my family that I didn't know much about. I kept going back and back and discovered they had lived in Camden, South Carolina, just 15 miles from where I currently live. This was on a Friday night. Two days later, I spent Sunday afternoon at the Camden Historical Society, curious to see what I could find about my ancestors. It turns out that my family had come from England to Pennsylvania, and then they'd moved to South Carolina in the early 18th century, and a hundred years later they were off to Alabama, where they converted to Mormonism, and headed to Council Bluffs, and then across to Zion. My direct ancestor was a certain John Rutledge, and no, not the early South Carolina governor and second chief justice of the Supreme Court, but apparently he was distantly related. These facts were easy to to digest, but others were not. From the minute I learned that I had ancestors in South Carolina, I had a sinking feeling. That feeling was confirmed when I found that John when I found John Rutledge Sr.'s will of 1803, in which he bequeathed, and I quote, one Negro woman named Millie and one Negro boy named Sam, and their increase, end quote, to his wife. Apparently he was fairly wealthy, as his will stipulates the fortunes of quite a few slaves and other property. So here I was, sitting in the Camden archives, looking at his at this will. I had grown up with virtually no contact with blacks, and now had the disquieting realization that my direct ancestors had been slave owners. I, of course, had no role in my ancestors' decisions to enter into polygamy, and I had no role in these newly found ancestors' decisions to buy and sell African men and women as property. But I can decide what I will do from here on out. Since moving to the South, I have had the opportunity to spend time at the Civil Rights Museum in Birmingham, Alabama, where I could see the bombed-out Freedom Rider bus and touch the bars of the jail cell from which King wrote his famous letter from Birmingham. I've been to the MLK National Historic Site in Atlanta, where I've seen where King grew up and where he worked. I can decide what I will do now with this information and how my past experiences can help shape what I, what I do, how I will teach my students and my kids about love, respect, and acceptance. 
And this is my Mormon expression. And for our final essay, for uh, part one, um, you'll recall at the beginning that I said we didn't put much of any rules on this. And I'm glad, because here we have an entry that is a song. Listen as Richard attempts to process the words of Joseph Smith and those of Gordon B. Hinckley to something they would both probably find disagreeable. This church takes the position that we will abide by the law. We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, magistrates, in honoring, obeying, and sustaining the law. Was am a proud, selfish, greedy, hurt, or all of the above when Joseph kept the truth from her as he fell secretly in love? Was Fanny Alger at 16 an ideal choice as plural wife? Did Joseph really see an angel with a sword threat in his eye? Was Emma lying about seeing the transaction in the bar? Or was it William McClellan having fun who spun the yarn when Oliver I condemn it, yes, as a practice, because I think it is not doctrinal, it is not legal, and this church takes the position that we will abide by the law. I still believe that right is right and wrong is wrong. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. It is not doctrinal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. I still believe that right is right and wrong is wrong. What? Huh? Man, don't say that. Why, Why do you say that? What do you mean? I thought it was good.
It sounded prophetic. Yeah, but now you're gonna die. Uh, I might not die. It could mean that I just won't tell him everything. back to the second half of our essay contest. Um, starting out the lineup, we have Perry. Perry uses in his essay a well-known letter from the Civil War to illustrate the nature of perception and how that can be controlled and manipulated. The element of emotion as it informs religion and prayer. Dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days perhaps tomorrow. I feel impelled to write a few lines that might fall under your eye when I am no more. Sullivan Ballou was killed a week later at the first battle of Bull Run. This story is a very honest letter and is very emotional. To demonstrate the power of emotion, I'll take the same reading and mix in music. A week before the battle of Bull Run, Sullivan Ballou a major in the 2nd Rhode Island Volunteers, wrote home to his wife in Smithfield. July 14, 1861, Washington, D.C. Dear Sarah, The indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. At least I shall not be able to write you again. I feel impelled to write a few lines that might fall under your eye when I am no more. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged. My courage does not halt or falter. I know America's civilization now leans on the triumph of the government, and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and the suffering of the revolution. I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to maintain this government and to pay that debt. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break. And yet, my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly with all those chains to the battlefield. The 
memory of all the blissful moments I've enjoyed with you come crowding over me, and I feel most deeply grateful to God and you that have enjoyed them for so long, and how hard it is for me to give up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years, when God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and see our boys grow up in honorable manhood around us. If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I loved you, nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults, my many pains I have caused you, how thoughtless, how foolish I have sometimes been, but, O oh Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they love, I shall always be with you in the brightest day and the darkest night. Always. Always. And when the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be my breath. Or the cool air, your throbbing temple, shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for me, for we shall meet again. Sullivan Ballou was killed a week later at the first battle of Bull Run. To demonstrate further the power of emotion. At sound effects and a professional narrator, along with a musical score that matches the meter and the tempo of the script. A week before the Battle of Bull Run, Sullivan Ballou, a major in the 2nd Rhode Island Volunteers, wrote home to his wife in Smithfield. July the 14th, 1861, Washington, D.C. Dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow, and lest I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I am no more. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how American civilization now leans upon the triumph of the government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I'm... If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I loved you, nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults and the many pains I have caused you. How thoughtless, how foolish I have sometimes been. But, oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they love, I shall always be with you in the brightest day and the darkest night. Always. Always. the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be my breath, or the cool air, your throbbing temple, 
it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for me, for we shall meet again. Sullivan Ballou was killed a week later at the first battle of Bull Run. The example I chose is one of a generic religious tone with a patriotic bent, which would tug at the heartstrings of most any American. I am not exhorting that emotion is bad, but when coupled with prayer in the hands of a fervent believer, can lead one down the path of destruction as well as exaltation. Hello, I'm Spencer Kennard. There is nothing quite as emotional as the music of Christmas. For over 140 years, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir has been singing songs of Christmas, songs that are central to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Logic, reason, and evidence should be the foundation of one's moral decision-making process, rather than cultural emotionalism. For example, this letter from Sullivan Ballou would not ring as true to a 17-year-old boy clad in gray and following the God that Robert E. Lee prayed to. When Warren Jeffs received answers from God about whom very young girls should marry, they were praised for not questioning the source of Jeff's prayers, or if one wife is enough. Adam Swap felt called by God to bomb a Mormon chapel in his hometown, and his father-in-law felt God was on his side as he refused to submit to a warrant by authorities. John Singer took his rifle with him to the mailbox to pick up his mail and died during an unprovoked shootout where Singer shot and killed a canine officer. With Old Testament zeal, Irville LeBaron's answers to prayer was to kill Joel, his prophet brother, and eventually 30 other followers that believed in the special calling of Joel LeBaron, rather than his special calling. Let us not forget that Ron and Dan Lafferty both felt a burning in their bosom when they prayed and received private revelation to slit the throat of their sister-in-law because she was influencing their brother not to trust in their newfound faith. Anyone who lived with these people saw them frequently and emotionally plead to God to guide them and give them direction in their lives and help them rule righteously over those with whom they were stewards. No logic justified the setting aside of common morality of killing innocent people. No measure of reason existed for the cruelty of their actions. And most of all, there is no evidence that their answers came from anywhere but their fertile and twisted emotional imagination. Emotions that inspire us to love more deeply or to judge not others are appropriate emotions. When the prepackaged, conditioned, cultural bias of music and the spoken word lulls us into a false sense of divine certainty which flies in the face of logic, reason, and evidence, that kind of dangerous emotional knowledge is what allowed parents to blindly enroll their young men to become altar boys for pedophilic priests who spoke to and for God.
Crossroads of the West, we welcome you to Temple Square in Salt Lake City for music and the spoken word with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and Orchestra at Temple Square. Today's conductor is Mac Wilberg with organist Andrew Unsworth and the spoken word by Lloyd Newell. Leaving the church oftentimes creates a large rift in people's families and other personal relationships. Most of the time, those of us going through the process are not equipped to know what to say. We've never been through this before and we've never been in this role. And unfortunately, you can find yourself in the position where your mere presence can be offensive to others. Listen as Stephanie talks about this experience. I left the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints a little less than three years ago. At that time, I said nothing. I have said little since the day I received my confirmation from the church membership office. Now I feel like talking. When I left, I felt like opening my mouth to say anything was proof that I was exactly what I did not want to be. I'm not an anti-Mormon. So many people think that when someone loses her testimony at the church, she becomes a vindictive, spiteful person with an axe to grind against the churchman's members. My voice was silenced by the desire to prove those people wrong. There was a lot I wanted to say back then. I wanted to shout from the rooftops that I tried. I really tried. Leaving the soft place that was my life in the LDS church was the toughest personal challenge I faced in my adult life. There was nothing simple about it. There was nothing light-hearted about it. For months I wrestled with the desire to be wrong, especially in the dark hours of the night when I sat up alone and miserable. I wanted to put that genie back in the bottle. I begged for something unseen to come and alleviate my doubts, to tell me that what I was seeing was not really there, that the things that I'd come to realize about the church had never really happened. I had the sensation of standing on the bow of a speedboat, feeling the movement of the water beneath me with nothing to hang on to. The more that I studied and the more that I prayed, the more I felt at the mercy of the wind and the waves. What I wanted to say was that leaving the LDS church did not mean that I was leaving behind everything that is good. I didn't wake up that first day as a new non-member with the intention to go out and do harm or to sin. Waking up that first day was strange. It was almost like mourning the death of a beloved friend, but all the while grateful that the suffering was over. My brain felt tired, and my heart was weary from the struggle. There was a strange peace in the middle of all the uncertainty, but it was just in its infancy. It would take several more months for the peace to come into full bloom. I did have moments when my anger erupted. I felt so betrayed. I felt so fooled. After a while, it would settle down, and I would just feel sad. After all, who was I betrayed by? The members and the leadership? Who fooled me? President Hinckley? Joseph Smith? Myself? Even though my anger could certainly find temporary targets, it usually dissipated into a nebulous sadness. 
There was a lot that I wanted to say to the people that I loved who felt left behind. If I could say it straight to them, I would tell them what I wanted to say. The first time that I came to a social event after my resignation, I was not ready for the look in your eyes. I came to show that my beliefs had changed, not my heart for my friends. It was clear that I made you uncomfortable. Had I realized that I would, I would have stayed away. That is why I do, to this day, stay away. I asked you about it because I needed to know, and when I was told that my presence offended members who were there, it changed me forever. I guess that was the end of my childhood as a non-member. It hurt me so much that the eyes that used to hold me in love and friendship now rejected me, in distrust, disbelief, and even disdain. After a while, what I wanted to say was that I get it. I understand, and I don't hold it against you, at least not most of the time. I still have my days when it hurts. I loved you like you were my family. The truth is, in many ways, I still do. I left the church. I did not leave you. When the rumors began swirling, there was a lot left unsaid that I wanted to say. I wanted to rage, scream, and cry. You know me. You know my heart. I left the church because I felt like my back was against the wall. Yes, I had lost my faith in the truthfulness of the church, but I did not start down that road intentionally. If you want to know, if you really want to know, the road opened up before me when I saw someone that I trusted, someone that I loved, almost like a father, use his leadership to act in a way that was entirely the opposite of the way that I've always believed that Christ would have acted. Not the Christ who sets out unending rules and principles of behavior and obedience. The Christ that I mean is the one that would have gone after the one as the ninety and nine grazed peacefully. The Christ that I mean is the one who invited in the sufferer, who dried the tears of the hurting, who loved the children and held them close. What I saw instead was the representative of Christ go after those who questioned, segregate those who hurt spiritually, and cut off the ones who wondered. That is the current that I was caught up in, and I left rather than become the next to fall. It would have been easy if I could have blamed a single man, a single leader who took the reins of his office and ran wild with it. I can't be angry at a group of leaders who acted in the way that their religion instructed them, them to act. They were not hateful men bent on hurting me and my family. They did what they felt they had to do to silence dissension. I want to say that I blamed that person for a while, and then it seemed unfair. I refused to swim in a lake of poisonous hate. Now, I want to say that I have love and peace and happiness and contentment in my life, and I like the person that I am today. As a member of the church, I was pretty quick to judge. Those who didn't seem to fit inside the church's brand, I rolled my eyes at the expressions of faith from other people. People who lived outside of the boundaries of what was acceptable fell in worth in my critical assessment. Now I find a simple joy in learning to love those who are different. Seeing everyone as children of the same loving God feels so much better to me than figuring out how to make everyone believe like me. I don't regret all of my years as a member of the church. There's so much good there, and my, my years as a member shape the person that I am. There's a scripture in the first chapter of Isaiah that touches on the final thing I want to say. That scripture reads, Come now, and let us reason together, thus saith the Lord. I want to say, do we have to stand divided? 
Is there a law set in stone that we cannot come together as people, maybe even as friends, no matter who we are or what we believe? Why do believers think that they are so different from atheists? Why are gay and straight so easily separated? Have we learned so little from the lessons of the past that we still can't overcome our differences and just be people who share the same air and land and time here on this planet? What I wish I could say is that I figured out the secret to loving everyone who's different from me. That would be a lie. But I have figured out that it makes no sense to me that anyone or anything connected with God would pursue compartmentalizing, labeling, and judging people. That is what I run as far away from as I can. I've not figured out everything, but I will spend the balance of my life in pursuit of that goal. What I really wanted to say is that my heart is open and there will always be room for you. We'll call our next essayist Roy. Roy deals with the issue that many of us face who have both left the church and otherwise dealt with our faith in the church, that of evolution. Evolution is out there and can be a challenge and a trial for virtually anybody's faith. Listen as Roy discusses his dealings with this challenging issue. I still remember my introduction as a child to the theory of evolution. I overheard a conversation between two adult relatives, and they mentioned a term I had never heard before. Curious, I asked one of them what the word meant, and the response was, Evolution is a theory that an atheist came up with so he could explain how life exists without God. Subsequent exposures to the term evolution by many church members expressed similar disdain. Admittedly, the term came up infrequently, but when it did, it was generally couched in the same tone of anger and fear that would accompany words like Satan or atheist. As a child, I naturally adopted this anti-evolutionary stance. At about nine years old, I came across a picture in a science book, a science book that my parents had recently purchased with a small section on evolution. The section had an illustration of early ape-like men living along a beach and emerging from the water. For whatever reason, I assumed the illustration was suggesting that ape-like men had emerged magically from the ocean. I chuckled at how anyone could believe anything so ridiculous. I even ran to my mother, exclaiming, I can disprove evolution! To her credit, while she didn't go into the details of the actual theory, she made it clear by her response of, I don't think that's exactly how evolution works, that maybe evolution couldn't be fully grasped just by looking at the pictures. It was not until my early teen years that I remember meeting church members that accepted evolution. However, these encounters only affirmed my belief that accepting evolution was a corrupting influence. The first was a Sunday school teacher who generally seemed like a good Mormon, but who frequently began the class by recounting the plot of the latest rated R movie he had seen. The second was a middle-aged man that moved into our ward and that was immediately known for being quite eccentric, quite eccentric and blunt. He befriended my very devout family, and it was in the course of conversations with him that he revealed his casual attitudes with the word of wisdom, violent movies, questioning the general authorities, and even making friends with strippers, though he of course insisted he never met them while they were on the job. As you can imagine, learning from these conversations that he also believed in evolution did little to dispel the idea that accepting evolution was not a sign that one was on the road to apostasy. It was in my senior year of high school when I finally had to face evolution, rather than a parody made up in my head or the caricatures offered by church members. I took an AP biology course, and what I learned made me extremely uncomfortable from what I now know 
is called cognitive dissonance. I soon saw that the evidence of evolution wasn't simply fabricated nonsense that one could easily dismiss, but that it had considerable evidence from the fossil record and other sources to support its claims. But perhaps even more troubling was that evolution not only explained how we got here, but also explained fundamentally who we are. It could explain our emotions and desires and even the attributes that the church considered divine. These things bothered me so much that I eventually stopped reading the course material and stopped paying attention in class. I began to fail a class, which up to that point I had done very well in. My relationship with evolution after high school was something like the relationship with the schoolyard bully. I actively avoided the subject, knowing it could beat my testimony to a lifeless pulp. Yet at the same time, I would never speak ill of it or those who accepted it because it had, in a certain way, gained my academic respect, albeit a fearful respect. I knew enough to know how compelling the arguments were in its favor. I had to concede that church members or others who accepted it had good reasons for doing so. I also met more church members who accepted evolution and who fully obeyed church standards and embraced church, the church's teachings. However, I personally felt I could not accept or reject it. I felt accepting and learning about evolution would undermine my faith, and rejecting it would deny my reason. I continued with this view all through my mission and during my time at Brigham Young University. It was only after I had lost my belief in the church and even God that the subject no longer terrified me. What I discovered amazed me. I found an ever-growing body of knowledge which confirms evolution and explains the exhilarating path of all life to its current state. I found the true narrative of my origins, from tiny, single-celled organisms to fish to amphibians, amphibians to reptiles to mammals and to humans. I found a true interconnectedness with all forms of life and the true link between myself and all other human beings from our common roots in Africa to the subsequent human diaspora into other continents. I also found why I and other Mormons hesitated to embrace evolution. In fact, according to a recent Pew Forum survey, over 70% of Mormons reject evolution as the best explanation for the origins of human life. I realized that just as I had feared in high school, evolutionary theory ultimately explains who we are. It explains why and when we feel anger, sadness, fear, happiness, pain, and love. We can see the complex interplay between environment and social interaction that led to our labels of right and wrong, good and evil, natural and divine. We can see that we are not engaged in an, in an internal battle of an invisible realm between competing good and evil spirits, but rather engaged in a battle of different, different instincts developed at different times for different purposes. We can see that our diverse dogmas, rituals, and beliefs all help delineate social groups and to define the us that we trust and cooperate with and the them that we compete with. We can see that the promises of eternal life and exaltation or eternal condemnation are ultimately providing the perceived continuity that fosters ongoing mutually beneficial exchanges so essential to a social group's cohesiveness. We can even see how the belief in, in, a, in an eternal life as family units is an interesting metaphor of the actual genetic perpetuation Mormonism encourages. I even saw how God in many ways represents the real social group 
that protects and nurtures us as we devote our time and energy to it. However, for all this additional understanding, I remained with a troubling question. Is it actually easier for individuals to find their greatest potential happiness and fulfillment without understanding their true nature and origins? Can some, many, or most people actually be better off not realizing they are the result of millions of years of natural selection, but rather believing they are eternal intelligences created into spirit and placed in human bodies as part of a plan of salvation orchestrated by an invisible, omnipotent being? I ask this both because I recognize that many find great happiness and fulfillment within Mormonism, and that I myself also had times of great peace, comfort, and joy because of my Mormon faith. The conclusion I have come to is perhaps ironically a product of my own Mormon upbringing, but also because of my experience since I lost my faith. I believe that as individuals and as a society, we can best achieve our greatest and most enduring happiness, peace, and fulfillment embracing the truth of our origins of organic evolution, and by creating a narrative for our existence that reflects the observable reality surrounding us. And perhaps I come to that conclusion in part because I ultimately believe, regardless of whether we personally feel we benefit from accepting that reality, that truth will prevail. Leaving the church can also leave one feeling sort of displaced in a foreign place. Feelings of what is normal and what is usual can leave us in a space of chaos. Here our essayist, Alan, discusses his issues with dealing with his loss of faith and discovery of his new persona. As I walked along a beach on the Atlantic coast last spring, my mind was flooded with an acute awareness of changes in time, space, and state of mind that have occurred for me over the past few months. For one thing, the idea of my being a seaside village dweller seems utterly bizarre and impossible. As a Westerner, my stereotype of beachgoers as laid-back sorts who said, dude, a lot, had deep tans and liked to smoke those funny brown cigarettes, made it seem a very unworthy and trivial pastime for a practicing Mormon, except maybe as a tourist. So the wet sand squishing between my toes seemed evidence of my emerging ex-Mormon status. I also noticed something else there on the sandy shore. You can't stand in one place for long. If you do, you start to sink into the ever-shifting sands being washed in and out with the tides. In fact, there is nothing about the beach ecosystem that is stagnant. From the very ground on which you stand to the life forms being shuttled in and out with every wave. Everything is changing, all the time. These changes are not gentle or fair. Sand crabs who are able to survive the jarring crash onto the beach may get picked off by shorebirds before burrowing to safety. Those who survive must be quick, strong, and lucky. Whether the changes occur constantly and rapidly, as on the beach, or imperceptibly, as in the arid Utah Canyonlands, all these things have an end. The constant swirl of the coastline is just harder to miss. On some days, I feel panicked by the disorder. I had always clung to the belief that there was someone, someone above it all, someone who could sort fairness and order 
out of this chaos and reward me for resisting change, ignoring logic, embracing absurdity, enduring, if you will. Now I see that when a sand crab is eaten, it is eaten, that's all. There is no divine justice to be meted out, no cosmic score to settle. One life ends, and another is fed. And ultimately, my life too will end. I'm learning that, as when standing in the wet sand, there is a continuous need to reinvent myself. Just as my life used to be filled with nevers and thou shalt nots, now it is filled with possibilities, which are sometimes liberating, sometimes frightening. All these things I would never do. Get drunk. Learn to work at coffee maker. Do something active on Sundays. Exclaim, oh my God, in the most vain way possible. Refer to Mormon founder Joseph Smith by the irreverent Joe, or even something less complimentary, or enjoy watching my wife display cleavage, out in public no less. I've done them all. Sinful? Worldly? No. Normal. Normal choices. And not a thing wrong with any of them. As a young child born in the covenant, I was taught to have faith, to believe what the kindly-looking grandfathers in Salt Lake City were saying, and most importantly, to believe Joseph Smith. Good feelings meant that all these things were true. Lack of good feelings meant that, well, keep on trying until you get those good feelings. As a young Mormon, I had good feelings and my parents, otherwise grown-ups, and some cute girls thought it was good that I had good feelings. Finally, however, I noticed that the best feelings I had were listening to music I liked, not hymns, although my favorite hymns weren't Mormon hymns anyway, sharing connections with other people, regardless of it being in a religious context or not, and of course anything to do with sexual arousal, except for the crappy guilt I was conditioned to feel afterward. Good feelings associated with prayer, scripture reading, and Mormon meetings tended to be weaker and fewer. On my mission, a two-year-long guilt fest, I learned that I could feel the spirit, by which I mean I could carry out my duties successfully and convince others that I knew what I was talking about just as well after sharing an off-color joke with my companion as I could after fasting and praying all day. It seemed that Alma's seed could grow just as well on asphalt as it could buried in fertile, well-watered soil. Something was amiss. Now I realize that good feelings come from, wait for it, stuff that makes us feel good. We see something beautiful, feel closer to our fellow human beings, or do something that we can take pride in. Good feelings result. Sometimes feelings come for reasons we're not aware, but that doesn't mean that they're any more magical than normal feelings. If you spend enough time with Mormons doing Mormon things, you'll have good feelings at various times. I also learned something else in my work with the mentally ill and other troubled individuals, namely that I had a very difficult time 
discerning what was delusion and lying from the real thing. And I'm sure that the reason for this is that I had been taught to swallow the Joseph Smith story hook, line, and sinker. I met scores of individuals in mental hospitals and other treatment programs who related stories much less, less spectacular and far more believable than Joseph Smith's, yet they were quickly dismissed because the person's delusions were typically self-serving, had no corroboration, and the person generally had a poor track record as a reliable witness. When someone tells you that God has told them to do something illegal, illogical, or downright crazy, how do you know that's wrong? Eventually, I've learned to be skeptical of statements from my clientele over the years. Once I was able to do that and see how deception, whether delusion or cynical exploitation, is a common ingrained human feature, I was able to see Joseph Smith for what he probably was. And as much as I would have liked to have had Christianity as a fallback belief system, the situation there is not much better. Imagine right now compiling a history of the original pilgrims based on no contemporary documents, only second and third hand accounts from a generation later, which tend to become more spectacular as time passes. That's the problem with Christianity. I'm afraid that the main difference between Christianity and Mormonism is that Mormonism had to contend with the printing press and widespread literacy. I suspect that if there were enough contemporary accounts of biblical history, there wouldn't be much left that would inspire us. So that's how my sand has shifted from being one of God's chosen to being just me not chosen by anyone, quite likely an incredible, spectacular accident, although one that is admittedly tough to explain. Somehow this universe went from Big Bang to a self-aware being, me. Although I have some idea of how, I have no understanding of why or if there is a why. All I have is an I don't know. Yet it is a delicious, fascinating, dynamic, and exciting I don't know. And my I don't know of today is different from my I don't know of a few weeks ago, which is different from my I don't know in the future. This is why I will be shifting with the wonderful sands of life for as long as I can. May you all enjoy the shifting sands in your futures as well. And finally, for our last essay, my old friend Nate uh, brings it in with a discussion of, well, you'll find out soon enough, but this is a this is an issue near and dear to Nate's heart. Nate, take it away. Circumcision is the amputation of the distal end of the prepuce. In America, the procedure is primarily done on male infants soon after birth. A few weeks before our first of four boys was born, we were asked what we wanted to do in relation to circumcision. We had never discussed it. The doctor told us that many people where we lived elected it for their infant boys, but that no strong medical indication exists. With limited information, 
we chose to have him circumcised. We were motivated to learn more about circumcision when we observed our third son express discomfort and perhaps pain. We were preparing for the birth of our fourth son. This time we had more information than the first time and we made a new choice to leave our new son intact. Our background in Mormon belief laid the groundwork to understand important issues related to circumcision. One foundational teaching in Mormonism is the sanctity of agency. Each individual is afforded and expected to make right choices. The ability to choose predated individual life on earth. This ability was so sacred to God and by extension his son Jesus Christ that preserving individual choice to follow God was preferred over enforced obedience. God knew that some would not follow his plan of happiness, but preserving the choice justified the cost. God in the Old Testament is recorded as directing circumcision for his male followers as a sign of his covenant or promise to bless them. As followers of the New Testament, we were taught that Jesus Christ fulfilled the requirements of the law. Mormon teaching is even more specific. In the Book of Mormon, the prophet Moroni records that the Lord told him that the law of circumcision is done away in me. With this belief background, it was simple to leave behind the belief that the procedure was an expression of meaningful faith. Sacred books we held as scripture abound with support for the view that the natural body is in the image of God. Among other factors, our upbringing in Mormonism supported our belief that our new son did not need to be surgically modified. Circumcision is simple and easy to understand. Parents of baby boys sometimes see a dilemma in whether to circumcise their baby or not. Several considerations may come into play. Is a religious point of view involved? Will the child's health, short-term or long-term, be impacted? Do social considerations come into play? Are ethical issues involved? Will one choice or the other result in a more preferred aesthetic? Should the circumcision status of his father or brothers make a difference? What about the child? For us, the Mormon perspective illuminated some of these issues. Most baby boys will not remember 
or know about their parents' choice. As they mature, however, a circumferential scar will be an unmistakable witness if the choice was to circumcise. With circumcision rates declining in the United States, a baby boy born today will probably encounter other boys and men with diverse backgrounds regarding circumcision. Perhaps most important, he is unlikely to know or have occasion to find out. For some people, a driving consideration behind ethical behavior is to maximize benefit for the largest possible group of people. This utilitarian or consequentialist approach falls short when a minority holds different values than the majority. Another ethical approach might be to value some behavior as intrinsically more valid than something else. When conflicting valuable actions exist, a ranking of these values must be made by the decision maker. Will parents more meaningfully express their commitment and love to their boy by electing circumcision or by keeping him intact. Another example of competing values has been resolved by legislators in many states who have determined that limited tax dollars have better uses than elective surgery. Ethical questions continue to be debated without consensus. While a parent or grandparent of the baby boy may prefer one look, the child who will become a man may have a different opinion. By leaving a child intact, his parents maximize his future choices. Consideration of circumcision status of relatives, be they a father, grandfather, uncle, or brother, places the parental choice in a different context. Should the baby be considered an individual responsible for making and qualified to make meaningful choices? Or will it one day become so? What about the child? Although a decision about circumcision can be stressful for a parent awaiting the birth of a son, it need not be. Circumcision is an elective procedure with questionable benefit. This unnecessary expense need not be perpetuated. Circumcision is simple and easy to understand, but we must become informed and choose. I'd like to again express my sincere thanks to all those who took the time and effort to record their essays and send them in. They had to go and find the recording equipment and do it all themselves, and I appreciate their effort. Um, I know I enjoy hearing from different points of view, and a lot of the thoughts and feelings expressed uh, are echoed for me. As always, the discussion continues at our website. You can find us at mormonexpression.com. You can send us an email at mail at mormonexpression.com. Or you can call us at 801-906-6722. Of course, the, this uh, was done in conjunction with the contest, 
We'll be announcing the contest winner at our live show on August 6th. And uh, you can listen to that podcast to find the uh, winner or check our website if you're listening to this much later. Um, Thanks again to everybody.